0: Our Father, that is our, our prayer, that uh, your, your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes, open up our ears to what the Spirit has to say to us, not just here at this moment and this time, but God throughout the course of our week, uh, that we would be sensitive to him, that we would not just be mere hearers of the word, but we would be doers as we are prompted by him. God, I pray that we would would follow you out into the deeper waters. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to so um, envelop us that we would come to understand and to know experientially, not just with head knowledge, what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live in the step with the Spirit, to experience the power of the Spirit flowing through us as we as we listen and as we obey and as we trust you in all things with our lives. So I, I pray uh, this morning as we open up your word to a very difficult passage, one that's been very confusing to people, that, God, you will give us spiritual discernment to help us to understand what it is James is challenging us with um, so that, Father, we might, uh, we might apply, we might, we might be emboldened in our trust and, and our Following of you wherever it is that you lead us uh, throughout the course of this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, uh, let's take our Bibles and go to James chapter 2. And I know that those of you in your small groups, uh, you uh, tackled this uh, passage of scripture. um, And I know that you probably did so quite eloquently. And uh, you probably come up here and and teach this lesson. But I just kind of want to weigh in on. Maybe a little different perspective on this passage, uh, and kind of give you my humble but most accurate opinion about it. So, uh, no, just hey, uh, before we dive in, um, there are there are uh, like uh, we have a prayer sheet here at the front out in the foyer for our ladies' retreat, in which we've given you specific items to pray for uh, as they are in preparation for that retreat and while they are at that retreat. And I just want to challenge uh, men. Uh, we're going to need your help. The weekend they're gone in the nursery, okay? So, um, um, you know, just you need to just get it in your heart right now to say yes, yes, I will. I will go in. I will dive into the diapers. I will do whatever it takes so that our women have and just an incredible, incredible weekend in which I firmly believe that they are going to. So let's let's jump right in. Um, so James. Uh, He talked to us uh, in the first chapter about trials, about temptation, about transformation. Uh, what that looks like, how it affects our conversation, our compassion, the, our conduct. And then he, di- he takes that and he, he goes uh, with kind of an example in dealing with favoritism. How do we deal with prejudice in our lives? And now he comes to the issue of faith. So here's what he says in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims? Now, uh, here's a key word, claims. If a person says that to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Now, those of you with the King James Version, that word such is not in your translation. It just says, can faith save him? And that's, that's part of the problem where people get mixed up. Uh, there is an article in the Greek that literally means such. Can such, what, what, what kind of faith, this faith that you're claiming to have, can such You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Oh, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, I want to start off um, with an incident that Jesus encountered in Matthew chapter 19. There was a a young ruler that came to Jesus, rich young ruler, uh, we call it. And many many of you are probably familiar with that that story. And this young man comes to Jesus. He asks the question, good teacher, uh, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus... Jesus, in response to this question, did not say to the young man, well, what you need to do is to pray a prayer. If you just pray the prayer, uh, receive me into your life, that's all you need to do. That's that's going to result in eternal life. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus immediately gave him something to do. He said, I want you to sell everything that you have, and I want you to give it to the poor. And we know the end of the story is that the young man was unwilling to do that. And so then he walked away. Jesus did not say, hey, it's okay. Uh, if you're unwilling to do that, I understand. Uh, we, uh, at least we got this eternal life thing squared away with you, and I hope that someday that you'll come back and you'll come around and you will begin following me and uh, obeying my, my commands and... Um, but, you know, hey, uh, at, least, at least we have your get out of hell card all satisfied and everything's just it is just cool. So when you come back around, it'll be all right. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not go after the young man. He watched him walk away, and then he turned to his disciples and gave them a very hard story about how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you took that same young man put him in a time machine, and walked him into our congregation, and he went up to you and said, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Most of us would respond by saying something like, well, uh, you need to believe in Christ, and you need to pray this prayer, and uh, just trust in him, and then, you know, here's some Here's a packet of information about what you need to do, you know, about baptism, follow-up, some things you need to do to help grow in your Christian life, and uh, we would just kind of leave it at that. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus, when people confronted him, when they, he was asked about this thing we call eternal life, how he approached them and how he responded to them, I think there's a lot, a lot of confusion about the nature of salvation. And this was brought to light with me when Hugh Hefner died last week, and people were all, you know, on Facebook, they're on the Internet, blowing it up as to whether or not he's going to heaven or hell, and, and uh, you know, about salvation and what it looks like. And there was so much confusion out there. I thought, oh, Lord, please, as God's people, surely we're not as confused about this issue as, as we appear to be. When it comes to the nature of salvation, people tend to gravitate towards one or two extreme views... On one extreme, there are those who say, well, you know, salvation is just all about faith. It's not about works. It's just all about faith. And we call that like easy believism. And the proponents of this say, hey, you know, it's just all about um, praying the sinner's prayer. If there's change in your life later on, that's fine, that's well, but it's really not necessary. Uh, it's really not evident of anything. You can just kind of, you know, after all, you're in grace and you're in Christ and you've believed in him. And if there's absolutely no change in your lifetime, you, remember, you're, in the, you're now in the pool of grace and you can just kind of live however you want and do whatever you want. There is that side of one extreme of salvation. Then we jump on the other extreme where it's all about uh, works and not so much about faith, and we call that works salvation. Proponents of this say, well, uh, no, what, what... what you need to do with eternal life. And they would look at James' question, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims that faith that has no deeds? They would say, okay, yeah, that's it. Give me the list, James. Give me the list. What do I need to do? Uh, what do I need to do to, to make sure I have salvation? Just give me the list and I'll work the list. And so churches do that, right? We, we give lists. We say, well, you need to do this, this, and don't do this, and start doing this. And we have our own little lists about what what that looks like, and then Jesus comes along and says things like, well, well, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father, and now they're like, we're really confused, it's like how he treated this, this rich young ruler, you know, he says, go and do this, and he just let him go, and now he says, you got to do the will of the Father, I'm confused, is it faith alone in Christ alone, or is it faith plus works, how does that all work out, and how how does that look in God's eyes? What are, what, are we, what are we supposed to do? What does it really mean? I think James comes and helps clear up the confusion when many people look at this passage before us, uh, oftentimes though, and become even, even more confused. James is seeking to take that which we call faith, which faith is really, it is about trust. It is believing, yes, but it's more than that. It's trusting, it's obedience, it's following. Whenever Jesus challenged people to become his disciples, he says, listen, you've got to trust, you've got you to follow, you've got to obey, you've you, 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 you got to tape up your cross daily and, and follow after me. And so, yes, there's the element of faith and there's the element of works, so how do those two things knit themselves together? And what does it mean to have authentic faith? I mean, is is authentic faith more than what we say or believe? Is it something about what we do? And I'm going to say right out of the gate, yes. That authentic faith is more than what you say. It's more than what you believe. It is tied to what you do. And that's James's whole argument here. He's laying it out. And so... People come to the Apostle Paul and, and they look at, and I've put this Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10 on your outline, and they look at Galatians 2 and Romans 4, and there's a lot of confusion about this faith and work issue. So let's let us let just Paul speak for himself. He says, for it's by grace, what is it? By grace, what is grace? Is that grace plus works? No, it's grace. It's God's work. It's what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that so no one can boast. So what Paul would say in Ephesians 2 is, listen, salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It has nothing to do with your works. It's not grace plus you trying to earn God's love, trying to earn God's favor, trying to appease God from being angry at you. No, it's grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, but it doesn't stop there. Those who receive faith, those who receive Christ, those who are trusting, those who are following, he goes on to say, but we are God's Workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So there is an element of faith, there is an element of works, and the two of them marry themselves together. So Paul is not saying something different than James. You got to understand that you're dealing with two different audiences. Paul is talking about the root of salvation. The root of salvation, faith alone, in Christ alone. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. That is, once I've established that relationship and I'm trusting him and I'm following him, that it's going to result in fruit. That's what Jesus says, right? You shall know them by their, their fruit. And so there's a whole different category here. Fruit production. This is exactly what James said. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, it's by grace God chose you. By grace you came to Christ, through faith in him, trusting in him, following him. And then he went on in verse 26 through 28 of chapter 1, says, now the evidence of that is the fruit of your life through your conversation, through your compassions, through your conduct. And all he's doing now is just kind of like spe- spelling it all out. Remember, there are 13 areas that James is, is kind of tagging us in our lives and saying, look, let's look at the evidence. You've got the root of salvation. Now let's look at the fruit of it. How do we take the root and produce fruit? Jesus was all about fruit production, right? Uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He's in me, I'm him. Apart from me, you can't do anything, but with me, we can bear much fruit, right? So he's all about fruit production. Please, please, please get this. We have been predestined by God To be conformed to the image of Christ, not to the image of heaven. Heaven is a fringe benefit. It's not God's ultimate goal. God wants you to experience heaven here on earth as much as possible. Eternal life is not about waiting until I get to heaven to experience all that God has for me. Ephesians 1, Paul started out of the gate by saying, listen, every single spiritual gift Every single spiritual blessing is found in Christ Jesus. And Paul didn't go on to say, now, when you get to heaven, man, you'll get to experience all that stuff. No, 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 no. He says we can experience it in the here and now. So it is about learning how to bring heaven into our lives. How do we draw from the resources of God? I don't believe that you can receive Christ and choose to follow him and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. I don't believe that God can give you a brand new heart and the spirit of God to empower you, to enlighten you. I don't believe that you can receive all of those things and experience absolutely no change whatsoever in your life and be called a true believer in authentic faith. But I'm telling you, once you have received Christ authentically and that begins to well up in you and begin to move you forward, God begins a process of what the Bible calls tra- sanctification, which is God's transforming process. And it's, a, it's progress, remember? It's not about perfection, it's about progress. There are gonna be some things that are different about your life. That's the fruit of salvation. That is what James is talking about. Now, here's the other big word that trips us up in verse one is the word save. That word save is not referring to salvation as we think of salvation of receiving Christ into our lives. The word save in the Greek means things like deliverance. It means restoration. It means to restore something that is broken. Um, and so it means to pers- to preserve something. James's whole argument is not about receiving Christ. No, he's saying once you've received Christ, uh, God's done such a work inside of you. Now watch this. If you will trust him, if you will follow him, if you obey him, he will will do incredible things in your life. So here's my bottom line, and here's what I want to kind of unpack here in the few moments I've got. Here's the bottom line. Watch this, God assumes full responsibility for our needs when we trust him and when we obey him. You have to, you have to learn to distinguish between the requirement for true salvation and the, the result of true salvation. Good works are not a requirement for salvation. Good works are the result of salvation. And so James is, uh, he, he's not like, he's not trying to get us saved. He, remember who he's, he's writing to? He's writing to the church, to the saints of God who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so you think about this. You are a refuge and you are out there and you are scared and there might be anxiety setting and, and things are going on in your emotions and your mind and you're confused about what's going on. And James is going to come along and say, listen, let's not give up the faith. Let's not give up trusting God. Let's not give up following Christ. Because if you do, then the faith that you have is going to be useless. It's going to be powerless in your life. But if you will trust God, if you'll follow him, he will assume responsibility for your welfare and God will do amazing and incredible things in your life. And the reason why this is relevant to, to us is that some of, you, some of you grew up in the religious tradition where uh, you grew up in church, and by the time you hit teenage years and you lost your mind, and your parents knew you lost your mind, and somebody, you know, aliens came and got you and replaced you with somebody else. Uh, what is it we like to do with teenagers? We like to gather them all up uh, in the summer months perfectly, and we send them off to a uh, camp right We send them off to a camp and uh, in that camp we do various things and there 's services and bible studies and But on the last night of camp you know like on Friday night or we have this great big service, we bring in you know a high powered praise team and, and somebody who 's going to speak and and we hope as parents we 're hoping that somehow uh, the spirit of God gets hold of our teenager and just like transforms their life, and they come to Jesus, and and once they come to Jesus, we know we can relax now, because uh, God's going to take that which is chaotic and bring order back in and restore their lives back, and so, you know, something tremendous happens to them, and they're crying, and at the end of the service, they all run out, and they grab their, their cell phones, and they call their parents, and say, oh, mom, dad, I'm so sorry for the way I've treated you, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be different from this way, this day forward, God, I, God's got a hold of my life, and things just... And so we're we, we hopeful, right? We're parents, and our kids come home, and, and things are, like, good for, like, two or three days, and then they go right back to the same old ways, right? Now, before we get down on the teenagers, um, adults, we do the same thing. We called them Revivals. Now, I'm not saying that God does not do a tremendous work in people's lives through revivals or youth camps, because he does. What I'm saying is this, and what James would say to us, it's all fine and well. You've put your trust in Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life, and you're wanting to follow him, but now... Now trust has to grow, trust has to deepen, trust has to expand because if it doesn't, You'll never follow Christ. You'll never go where he wants you to go. I, I shared, and I'm not shared this with you as a church, but I shared this with our prayer team. Uh, God gave me a vision a couple weeks ago, and in the vision, it was Jesus in the, he was like in a lake, he was he was turning back, he was looking at me, and he was asking me to come with him. And, and in the vision, God was saying and prompting in my heart, I want you to go deeper with me than you've ever gone before, because I believe that as the leader, as the pastor of this church, that God wants to take this church deeper deeper than it's ever gone before. But if we're going to go in the deep with God, listen, it's going to require what? It's going to tr- require trust. It's going to require obedience. It's going to require faith. It's going to require us moving with God and moving with the spirit if God's going to unleash his heavenly resources down upon our earthly concerns so that we see and we experience what God can only do apart from us, right? Right? But if I say to Jesus, I can't go there with you, then my faith, my trust is is going to become useless and worthless because if I'm unwilling to go with him and there's no trust and there's no following, there's no obedience, then really what what good is the faith that I have in Christ? And so... um, So James comes to us and he says, listen, you can believe all the right stuff and you can have all your ducks in a row, but uh, if you're not applying what your Heavenly Father is calling you to apply, um, if you're not using your faith appropriately, then, then what good is it? Again, God assumes full responsibility for your needs if you're willing to trust Him, to follow Him, and obey Him, and walk after Him. Now, here's why some of you don't. Because you have a very distorted view of God. See, people look at God in the Old Testament and they think God's this angry judge and he's just like, you know, always wrathful and just waiting to get at people. And then we come to the New Testament and we got like Jesus, okay? Jesus is meek and mild and he's just like lowly and won't hurt anybody, wouldn't hurt a fly. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we do not even sure about the Holy Spirit. We don't even understand him. We don't even know anything about him. And so we'd like, damn man, let's camp out with Jesus because, you know, Jesus is all about good things. Have you ever really read what Jesus says at times? <laughs> He's got some really hard statements. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to following him and trusting him and walking with him. And so, and so, God wants to. T- so you have this distorted view of God. And, and Marla was sharing with me in a devotional she had this morning. It really deals with this whole passage. And God, this is the word that God gave me. A distorted view of God always results in a dysfunctional relationship with Him. You see, God wants to do so much in some of your lives. But your, your view of God is so distorted, you just can't bring yourself to that point of trust. You, you can't bring yourself to that point of followership. And so what James will say to you, listen, can that kind of, can such a faith save you? Can such a faith deliver you? Can such a faith restore you? Because I, I know that last week when we talked about the royal law, about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, some of you are thinking, I can't love my neighbor because I don't even love myself. It does not have to be that way. God can bring healing where healing is needed God can restore damaged emotions God can restore uh, spiritual distortion God can unearth the lies that you have you're living your life on if you'll let him if you'll trust him you know every Saturday morning um, we we have a healing prayer ministry in this church now and we We make no bones about it every Saturday morning. We pray for people. We pray for spiritual healings. We pray for emotional stuff, physical stuff. Uh, demonic oppression, strongholds. Uh, and I, I keep sharing, it's it just, uh, you know, it's just amazing what God is doing. God is setting people free and God's releasing them and and God's giving them like a new lease on life because they, they trusted God enough. They might be in their heart said, you know what? I'm not sure, I'm not sure this is gonna work and I'm gonna come at, I kind of come at this with you know, like a half-hearted faith, but it's amazing if even if they have faith of a mustard seed and they just, they're there and and it's not like there's any there's nothing about the prayer team that's extraordinary. It's just that we're leading them to the throne of God and asking the Holy Spirit to come and to enlighten them and to bring to light that which is hidden in darkness so that God... God might, from heaven, bring down the resources into their life, whether it's forgiveness or maybe it's giving up that jealousy or those issues of anger. And it's amazing that God just lifts this load off of them. And so rather than living their lives filled with anxiety, they believe God and trust God enough to come to him as a child in need of something they cannot produce on their own. And they walk away with a piece of Christ that surpasses all human understanding that would guard our hearts and our minds. That's what faith does. And so James he says, suppose he gives a a practical illustration. He says, suppose somebody comes to you without clothes and without daily food. And like this person's not like trying to rip you off, okay? So they really have a legitimate need. And I think that probably um, in the early church, this is probably what was was happening. So true authentic faith is your first feeling is, is it's more than what you say. There are three key words that he uses throughout these verses, uh, say or claim, and depending on your translation, see and show. He says, you know, if you say, uh, show me, see, I, I see it. In other words, he says, authentic faith produces recognizable evidences in your life. And so he says, what good is it? Um, talking about usefulness of your faith. What what good of is, is somebody comes to you, and they have this profound need, and, and maybe somebody comes and says, you know what, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I, I've lost my job, and we're way behind on the mortgage, and I don't know how I'm going to provide food for my family, and the kids need some clothing for school, and, and we're just really, really in a bad way, and they come, and they unload this on you, and you you say to them something like, Well, you know what? Uh, I'm glad you came to me. I, I really am because I believe that God, God can really do a work in your life. And, and uh, you, know, I, I, you know, obviously, obviously, God in Scripture, I mean, He fed 5,000 people with just some loaves and fishes. And, and there are times when, when God just did incredible things. I mean, he, he can deliver, He can do anything. And then you just say, You know what? Let's pray together. And you pray over them and say, Now, now go, and, and, and God will take care of you. And James would say, what good is that? This person's got a need. Now, you, if, if God brought that need to you, then obviously God wants you to do everything in your power to make sure it gets met, right? You may not have all the money, but at least you might be able to gather up a resource team that could help this family in their, their time of need. And so he says, can, can such a faith save? James is saying, listen, can faith help this family? Can faith help restore them, deliver them from their need? Absolutely. When we put feet to our our faith. Okay, something we might, let's say I'm a husband and I'm married, obviously, and there's like real bad blood between me and my wife. And uh, the Bible says to me, that in the book of Genesis, God laid out four foundational principles for marriage. And then uh, the entire New Testament builds on those foundational principles. And when there's marital problems in my life, it's because I'm ignoring or disregarding one or more of those four foundational principles. Now, if I claim to have faith and I claim to be a follower of Christ and I claim to trust him and now all of a sudden the spirit of God says to me, Greg, uh, you know what? One of the problems in your marriage and one of the problems in your relationship, it's you, my friend. It's you. Stop blaming your wife. Stop blaming your kids. Stop blaming your coworkers. No, it's you. And here's what I need you to do in order to bring about wholeness and healing and hope back into that relationship. And I look back at God and say, God, I understand what you're saying but I don't really think it's me and therefore I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's going to work any any different anyways. How good's my faith? How's that going to help me? It's useless. It's dead. It's pointless. The only reason I'm not experiencing God's healing in my marriage is because I refuse to trust him and do what he's asked me to do. You can take this in any area of your life. You can take it in your finances. You know, God says, you come to God and say, oh, God, you know, uh, my finances are a wreck and I, I don't know what to do. And, and God's spirit, you know, you're reading through the word and God's saying, listen, here's some sound financial principles you need to apply in your life. Let's get those things on the, on the foundation first. And then once you get those in place, and I'll, I'll allow my spirit to guide you in the financial decisions that you need to make in the future. But what if I say, well, God, you know what? I understand what your word says about finances. I understand what it's laid out. But um I'm just not going to do that i don't think that's going to work I don't think that will help me I don't think that will benefit me. See, the whole point is we can come to church Monday through Saturday and uh, walk out of here, and we can say, we can say, "Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus, Jesus, yeah, he's savior." I can say, yeah, yeah, I believe God can supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ. I can say anything, but the push comes, where am I actually trusting him enough to do what he's asked me to do? So that God can bring salvation into my finances. God can bring salvation into my marriage. God can bring salvation into my parent-child relationship. God can bring salvation into my extended family. That God can bring order where there is chaos because I was willing to trust him and to follow him and to do what he says to do. That's James' whole argument. He says otherwise it's it's just crazy, man. That's just be like telling people that, you know, God's a doctor when you're sick. He'll feed you when you're hungry. He's a shepherd when you're lost. He's a rock in the middle of the storm. But then you never do anything about it. And so he says there's two kinds of faith. Ken, suppose, uh, you know, he says, um, uh, but someone will say, well, you have faith, verse 18, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So this is like this living and dead faith. There's active and inactive faith. And so the question is, how is your faith activated? Because faith, apart from application, does not bring deliverance. It does not bring restoration. It does not bring change. So faith is more than what you say. Faith, he says, is more than what you just believe. It's more than what you just believe. And so uh, he, he says, um, hey, let's say you come to James. say, Hey, James, listen, listen. Uh, Uh, Stop meddling in my life, all right? Stop tell, talking to me about my prejudices. Stop talking to me about whether I'm just a hearer of the word or do the word. Stop talking to me about my temptations. Stop talking to me about whether I'm following earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom. Stop talking to me about my conversation, my tongue. Stop talking to me about, and we can lay, list off a lot of different things. And just like James, just, you know, this is what I believe, James. And and quite frankly, um, what you believe is what you believe. What I believe is what I believe. And the two, uh, they, they just may not. Turn out the same way. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm doing my belief thing. You do your belief thing. And and if it works for you, great. If it works for me, great. <laughs> so, so James, I, I find this highly interesting. He brings the demonic into it. It's like, what? James is always surprising me. He's like, comes along and says, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, if that's your mindset, that it just really doesn't matter what you do. It only matters what you believe. Do you understand that the demons uh, in uh, that that, that roamed the heavenlies. Uh, they believe they believe in Jesus, right? If if you don't believe that, just just read your Bible, okay? Read the New Testament when Jesus would perform an exorcism. How the the demonic world would acknowledge his deity as being the Son of God. They would they would acknowledge the the power of God himself, and and they would they would acknowledge all of these things about James, about. Um, Jesus and, and his power and his ability to do whatever. But it didn't make any difference among them. The only thing they could do was step back in fear and just absolute shudder. It's just like, you know, the hair standing up on end of your entire body. They believed a lot of things, probably more than what we believe. But it did them absolutely no good. James is basically saying your actions back up your words. It's not a question of just believing the right thing. It's a question about doing the right thing. So I put this on your outline is that you can believe the right things and still not do the right thing. If you were to ask me, Greg, do you believe, do you believe, do you believe in your personal health as being a priority of your life? Absolutely, I believe that. I believe that's a, a big priority. I'm a diabetic, so, so uh, my health is a priority of my life. Well, Greg, let me ask you a few questions then. Do you eat right? No. Do you exercise? No. Do you go for regular checkups? Do you check your? Do you monitor your the blood sugar levels uh, in your system? No, and you just keep asking me questions. I keep saying no. So I just told you I believe I believe that my health is of a high priority to me but I absolutely do nothing to demonstrate the priority that has in my life. Listen, we can talk all day long about what we believe. We can talk all day long in our small groups of how we believe the world is you know, just disintegrating, getting darker and darker, and we can talk all that we want about the lostness of humanity, and we can talk all that we want about any subject that we want, and we can believe a lot of things about that, and we can blow up Facebook with all of our opinions and beliefs, But what James would say, listen, if you don't take that belief and put it into practice and do something with it, then you're no further along than the demons in hell. It's not going to do you any good. God has all these resources. God has all these spiritual blessings that he wants to pour out upon you. But you you just don't move forward in, in trust. And so he says, true faith is authenticated by what you do. In verse 20, he he says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? That word foolish means to be empty or to be deficient, um, to be an imposter. He's he's saying that, that, that faith is, that person is, they're empty, they're deficient, they're they're an imposter. If they don't exercise their faith, if, they don't, if faith is nothing more than just what I say or what I believe but is, has no actions attached to it, then it's just not going to help me at all in life. That's why Christians, watch this. Christians, they, they give their life to Christ. They spend years in church. They spend years in Bible studies. They spend years at conferences, but hardly anything changes in their life because we're great talkers. We're high on the belief, man, get the theology right, and I'm all about the theology. But James would come along and say, now where's the doing, where are the, where are the works, where, how are you applying this? You see, one of the reasons why Satan keeps you in such bondage to your old life is because You've never stepped forward in faith. You're not trusting God and and what God says, how you you can experience the tearing down of strongholds, how you can experience the deliverance that God wants to bring into your life. And so true faith is authenticated by what you do. And then then you know he gives these two incredible uh, illustrations, Abraham and 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 Rahab. Now here's where the big here's where the big um, confusion is. All right, I'm just gonna I've only got two minutes. The word justified. All right, verse 24. This is what throws people. So what what James is saying is that, listen, back in Genesis chapter 15, when God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness, his faith was placed in God's promise and the God who made the promise that he was giving him a promised son and through him would come a nation. When God asked Abraham to take his son Isaac and take him on Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. Listen, many years had passed between that issue and and the future issue of so what, what had God done in the process he had been developing Abraham's faith he's been strengthening his faith he's been tri- he's putting through trials he's putting through temptations and with each passing year Abraham's faith goes deeper and his trust becomes bolder and so now he reaches this level of where uh, he offers up Isaac as this sacrifice to God as if to say God you know what there is nothing there's nothing I will not lay on the line for you I will trust you I will fight all you. I don't care what it is you want me to do. Now here comes the word justified. He was justified. That is a, um, a positional term. It means that it's a, it's a term of, um, judicial term. When Abraham put his faith, and initial faith and trust in God. God acquitted him of his sin record. Just like when you and I put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God acquits us of our sin debt, and he marks it paid in full. It is canceled. It is paid in full based on what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, period, right? So that is positional holiness, positional righteousness. The other way that uh, justification is used is that the way I justify my the authenticity of the root of my salvation and justify it before the eyes of humanity is through what I do. When I trust God, when I'm following God and I'm leaning on him in all ways of my life and then it authenticates to the world around me that I have a faith in a savior, I have a faith in Jesus that uh, no one can take away and that he, the root of that salvation, has brought about the fruit of the activity of Christ in my life. That's all that's all James is saying. He was justified before God through faith, and he was justified before humanity through what he did. There's no contradiction here. It goes back to what Paul said. We are saved through faith alone and Christ alone, but once salvation has taken root in us, the change begins to take place, and now all of a sudden the evidence of that change is found in the fruit of our lives. It's the same thing with Rahab the prostitute. I mean, the reason I think that he threw in Rahab, uh, not an afterthought, is because they were so diametrically different. You know, Abraham's a, a patriarch, she's a prostitute, he's a male, she's a female, he's a part of the covenant relationship, she's outside of the covenant relationship, but if you read uh, Judges chapter 2, you will note her... Um, I mean, Joshua chapter 2, you will note her her salvation experience is that she is, she is acknowledging the God of Israel and putting her faith and trust and so she is justified positionally before God. And then by taking in the, the spies and hiding them and helping them out, she she justifies the legitimacy of her relationship with God through the things that she did. If you go to the... Faith chapter of Hebrews 11, you will see that every single person listed there, it says by faith, and there is a trust in God, and then there is an action of obedience. That is what James is saying is, listen, if we, if we believe that God can be trusted, if we believe that God has what is for best for us, not because I'm trying to earn his love, his favor, or anything else, I'm simply trusting him out of my sheer love and gratitude for what he's done in my life. God can do incredible things for those who will trust and follow him because he assumes responsibility for the outcome. So here's the, here's the life principle of authentic faith is biblical application, truth to my life on a daily basis. That's what the Bible calls works. And those works are accomplished through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Here's the problem with a lot of people is that we come to this point of decision for Christ And we try to tack Jesus onto our life. Hey, Jesus, follow me. Uh, let's get in on board on what I want to do. Let's get on board with where I'm going with my life. Let's get on board with where it is that I want to go and what I want to do and how I want to live. And so we try to tack Jesus on. Jesus has never come to tack himself on you. Jesus called you out of darkness into light to follow him, to follow where he goes. And wherever he goes, you are to follow. You are to trust. You are to obey. And as you follow, as you trust, as you obey, God brings about transformation in your life and all of a sudden things begin to change your conversation begins to change your, your compassions are, are now you know on an all time high and you see things that you never saw before and you feel things you never felt before and the conduct of your life and the character of your life begins to change why? because Jesus has made such a radical radical transformation inside of you when people give their lives to God in exchange for just a ticket out of hell and there is no turning there is no change of direction there is no real rem- repentance in their life. They just kind of want to spiritualize Christ in their life. That's not what God's called us to. You don't need the Holy Spirit if all you want to do is be a good person. You don't need the Holy Spirit if all you're going to do is go to church. You don't need the Holy Spirit if all you're going to do is just pick up your Bible once in a while and read it. You don't even need the Holy Spirit to pray if that's what you're going to do. You need the Holy Spirit for those and everything in your life because everything is centered around him. But unless I'm willing to trust him and follow him and walk after him and do what he's asked me to do, then James will say, your your faith is... There can be no restoration. There can be no deliverance. There can be no change. That God can't get. God, you know, God's going to have a hard time in engaging himself because you're unwilling to trust him. Have you ever seen one single person in the Bible in which God has done a miraculous work, including Abraham? The only reason why there was a, th- a, a ram in the thicket to deliver, to save Isaac, is because Abraham stepped out and trusted God and followed him. And the same thing is true of your life and mine. You wanna see, you wanna know why we get bored with our Christian walk? You wanna know why we get bored with Christianity? Why we get bored with Jesus? Because we're not willing to trust and obey. We sing a hymn like, "We trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So let's bow our heads together. And maybe you're here this morning and. Uh, You're saying, Greg, man, I'm I'm more confused now than I ever was. Are we saved by faith alone? Absolutely. Jesus alone, faith alone. But once Jesus takes root in your life, he's going to call you out into the waters, into the deep waters. He's going to call you to follow him walk after him. Now There were a lot of people who started that initial journey with Jesus in his earthly ministry but by the time it was all said and done a lot of them had departed so much so that at one point Jesus looked at his disciples and said are you going to leave also? To which they looked at Jesus and said but where would we go? Who else has eternal life? Who else has what you're offering? Of course the answer is Nobody. And so James would say to us, listen, if if we want to claim that our religion is authentic, that our faith is helpful, and it can't just be something we talk about. It just can't be something that we believe. It's got to be something that we do. And when you do, when you follow, when you trust, when you obey, God begins to save. God begins to deliver. God begins to restore. God begins to to bring... uh, to preserve things in your life, God begins to make a difference. And your faith with him begins to, to grow deeper and deeper and, until eventually it just begins to soar. And maybe there's somewhere along your Christian journey where your trust in God was so high. I mean, it's just like I trust him for everything, but somewhere along your life, you just kind of lost that. You just kind of stopped. You just kind of sat down and said, you know, I, I, just, I just can't go there with you, Lord. Or maybe you're willing to trust God in some areas of your life, but in other areas you just say, God, I just can't do that. I can't go there. I can't, I can't do that. And maybe he's challenging you in that area of your life. There are some of you here that I know you need divine healing. Your heart's so full of anger and bitterness and resentment you can't even see straight. But you're blind to it. You don't know how much it's really controlling your life. And God wants to heal you of that. He wants to bring deliverance. He wants to bring salvation in that area of your life. I don't know what the Spirit is speaking to you, but I know He's speaking. Where are you unwilling to follow Jesus? That's where He's going to start. For some of you here this morning, maybe it's that initial step of of reaching out and and, then trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord of your life, to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die on a cross for my sins, and I want to follow him, and I, I want him to be a part of my life, to be the commander-in-chief of my life. I desire that. I want to be a part of his family, and maybe that's your first step. So, Father, as we, um, as we just contemplate this morning as we just listen to what the Spirit is saying, God, may may you give us ears with which to hear, eyes with which to see, where it is that Jesus is calling us to go. where are you holding back? Where are you refusing to travel? Let's take our Isaac and lay it on the altar this morning and give it over to him. Father, have your way. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. The prayer altar is open.